Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. Hey, everyone. Before we get started with the show, I'm excited to announce two things. First is that my book, Marketing Automation Unleashed, is now live on Amazon. So go get it. The second thing is we have a new sponsor, Qualified.com. I'm going to tell you about them in the next couple seconds here and also how you can get a free copy of my book thanks to them. So who are these people? Well, Qualified is the number one live chat and chatbot platform for Salesforce and Pardot. Sales reps can have real-time, personalized conversations with who? Your hottest website visitors. So I want you to know, I don't just partner with anyone. I genuinely love these guys. And the platform, we use it at my company. Our sales team loves it. We've closed a lot of deals based on it. Um, had a lot of great conversations with prospects too. So, you know, a lot of marketing these days is what? Hurry up and wait right? Fill out this form. And then if we pass you over to sales, maybe you'll swap six emails with them to find a good time to talk. But what if a prospect is doing research right now and they would chat now? Why not give them the opportunity? So the best part is your company actually decides what leads are worth a live chat. There's a lot of noise out there. You don't want to talk to everyone. So Qualified actually connects to Salesforce and Pardot and it's able to pull in lead and contact information so you can specifically know if you're talking to a VIP, a VP, a decision maker. It's really kind of like magic. Now, if you don't know who someone is, well, what happens then, Casey? Well, that's when the bots come in handy. Chat bots can then ask you know, questions to further qualify a lead. Find out if maybe this is someone you do want to talk to. And they can book meetings while your sales team is out. And they can wake up the next morning with a bunch of meetings on their calendar. Now, here's the promo. If you are a company that wants to give your sales team this ability, right, to be able to talk to decision makers right when they're on your website, do this. Go to qualify.com and start a chat, right? They use their own tool, of course. Start a chat. Tell them that Casey sent you. If you have Salesforce Pardot, when you schedule and then do a demo, they will send you a free copy of my book, Marketing Automation Unleashed. Not bad, right? Well, it's only while supplies last. So, Hop on this thing today. And that's it for sponsors. Let's get to the show. And it's on like Donkey Kong. We are going to crush this. I'm stoked. Looking forward to this. The introduction for who we're about to learn from and listen to. It has so much to say. What is he, Casey? What is he? He's a, he's a chief marketing officer. He's, a, he's a, a thought leader in the marketing space. A professor, facilitator, an idea guy with a capital D in idea. He's an author, speaker, director, producer, co-founder of Your CMO, spelled Y-O-R, strategic coach, a facilitator. He's an adjunct professor and the owner and creative director of Frost Media Group, Joe Frost. How are you, sir? I'm great, Casey. How are you? Thanks for having me. Good. I can't believe it. All those things I'm saying about you, I, here I am talking one-on-one -on -one with you. What an honor. Can't wait to learn from you stoked this is our marketing leadership series and so what i'm going to do is i'm going to pass you this thing it's imaginary right now because the real one's back at the office this is thor's hammer so go ahead and take that and smash for me some kind of marketing myth bogus strategy misconception that just drives you crazy 
Yeah, so the, the myth that I kind of uh, been fighting against for the last uh, 12 or so years is the myth that you can't put structure around the creative process. And I've always found that to be pushback that uh, I've gotten from people within the industry that, that consider themselves creative or value the creative process as this kind of ethereal thing that just happens and it just comes to us and that you can't put timelines and processes and constraints around it, that people need the space to, to free form and, and free flow ideas. And um, I always thought that was just a bunch of bullshit for people not wanting to do much, but sit around and, uh, you know, think a lot, which I'm an idea guy. So I like to sit around and think a lot. But one thing you didn't mention in your uh, uh, intro is I'm also a chemical engineer by training. I got That's my undergraduate right. degree in chemical engineering. So I know the, the value of structure and processes. And so when I think of marketing and creative, I look at how can we put structures and processes in place that can, can define kind of what's happening in that creative process and then predict a more uh, uh, perfected outcome and there's no perfection in marketing and creativity but putting a structure around the process uh, of creative to be able to produce a more predictable product I think it is completely doable it's what I've been spending my last 12 years doing uh, and it's, it's key to my success and I think a lot of people if they can understand that can be much more uh, successful in their own marketing and creative space Right. Now, now, as you're describing that, I'm thinking of like, and we're all kind of creative here, so we're making fun of ourselves in a way, but like yeah. the, the guy who's just like, you know, the artist or someone who's just like, hey, man, you got to, Joe, you got to chill. Like, why are you putting all these restrictions on me, man? I just want to create. I just want to draw. I just want to write like why man you're like the law you're like the man like coming down on me i don't know why i'm turning into a hippie all of a sudden but <laughs> like you know it's like wow yeah, this, totally. wow, this restrictions man I, I just need to let it flow what's what's the response to that well yeah and i think you know that's been around forever but we've already had we already have processes or structure like we have creative briefs that kind of give us you know these guidelines we have due dates you know we have client internal reviews we got client reviews i mean we do have very limited structure already. So the, the idea that we can't work without within any structure is ridiculous. But True. when you start trying to put more pressure on that, that hippie or more pressure on that <laughs> time bomb, that's when the pushback really comes. And, and what I've found is I, I'm the first kind of guy that I like to show up and just, let's just rip, let's just figure it out. Let's just yeah. go. Like I, I don't love to plan things very much. I'm very spontaneous. <laughs> And so I think we're all like that in marketing and, and creatives. But there's a concept called being consciously competent that I learned, gosh, about 15 to 20 years ago. And if you can imagine like an X, Y axis, uh, and on the X axis, for those of you that aren't, aren't engineers, the X axis goes along <laughs> the horizon, right? Okay. And yes. so that's, that's conscious. That means you either know or you don't know. So just think of it like that. I know it or I don't know it. That's on the two ends of the access. Okay. And then the Y access is competence. That's the, I'm really good at it or I'm not good at it. So if you just imagine the X, Y access, there's a lot of people out there that are creatives that are really good, but they may not know why they're good. Uh. And there's a lot of people out there that are really bad and they might not know why they're bad. But then if you can get move people to more of the understanding of why they're good, 
more so than why they're bad, but why they're good, then you can put structure around what makes somebody good and why they're good. And if you can define that and put some parameters and frameworks in place, you're more likely to get the good outcomes. And the people within that system or that framework understand why they're good at producing the same thing or the, or the same result every time. And that's, that's the concept that I like to think about when I, when I put structure around creative. That's cool. So you're thinking about what, like different conditions or different, like what was going on? Like what made me successful at that time? So I could just recreate the conditions. Yeah. So exactly. Like if you look at, Hey, I really, I really nailed that last project. Yeah. Great. What did you do? Right. Oh, I, I, you know, I sat down with a customer. I really spent, we spent a lot of time just brainstorming. And then I went back to my, you know, my, my drawing board and I, I, I mapped out a handful of options. I threw them back at the customer and you know, whatever that process was, you really nailed it. If you could define those steps and then you start getting some insights and ahas, like, geez, every time I nail, nail a process, I have this feedback loop with the client that's really early on, but I never have it in the middle because they always derailed me and put me in a bad spot. Like you start wow. figuring out those bits and pieces of the process, that the really good people are doing. So you don't, you don't create it from scratch. You're modeling behavior of the people that are successful and what, right. why they're successful. And then you build the structure that way. Right. And instead of winging it, I mean, we like to wing it, but you don't want to wing the entire thing. It's like recreating every wheel in the car, now, even recreating the, the painting frame. Like, you don't have to do all of that. Why don't you, you know, be I like this consciously creative, you know, yeah. and, and, and zero in on what is some of the factors, maybe there still is the wing. You still got to wing some of it. You still got to use your, your flow state, but at the same time, you can get yourself, you know, into that faster by, by yeah. being observant. And you're just modeling the ah, best okay. outcomes. And so if you think about back to my chemical engineering days, I mean, all engineering is, it's just, you're creating, you're creating a system that explains what's happening in formulas and functions, but it's all done in a lab first. What would you, you say would, though? You modeling best outcomes. What, what, what do you mean by that? So you're finding like, hey, what worked really well okay. and who does this or, or who does this really well? And then you're just learning from what they did or what he or she did that made it turn out. And so it's just, it's, it's, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a, a bunch of projects. You know, you throw the bad, the bad steps out, you test alongside each other. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a iterative process, but, and it works. Um, it's how I built our video production systems and processes. Like I got, I got a lot of pushback from our team before we started doing this. Yeah, tell um, me about it. Like, so you just, you know, we're like, hey, we do videos. We just kind of, we make magic here. But you're like, what's the, how did you form that process? And how did you figure out, like, how do you figure out what is working? Like, what, what was the magic that led up to it? Because sometimes it just, it, it happens and you look back and you're like, how did I even get there? Well, for me, it probably started with, you know, thinking objectively, like yeah. I am not a videographer. I'm not, I'm not an editor. I, I am not an artist in that sense. Uh, so I put the, I come with a different lens. Like how can we provide a service videography to our customers repeatedly and efficiently so I can keep the price point as low as possible while still providing a high quality product and making money. And we were, serving the nonprofit sector. So that's the push on us was, 
keep the pricing low right. because nonprofits want to do more video, but they don't have a lot of budget. So, you know, it's not like a uh, an avatar film where you know we can spend you know ten million dollars. Now this is you know, we got to build these videos in a way that 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 we can have a a price point that they can afford. And then okay, so with that constraint. What are what? How do we how do we make a video? Like, what is the pro, what are the steps? So we sat down as a team and we just walked through all the steps. And then I started just asking questions: like, is that step necessary, or should this? What should go first, this step or that step? How much time really need to shoot, prepare for a shoot? How much time do we need to edit? Well, and then we did a bunch of past projects and like, which ones worked, which one didn't work, what went wrong, and you learn a lot more from what didn't work than what does. Right there was not an internal review because we showed the client the first video too soon. You know, mm, not you even just we showed it, it, it was too, the timing of it was too soon. The timing of it. Cause if we would have looked at it ahead of time, we would have caught one or two things that maybe the pre-production team knew was a hot item for the customer, but the editor didn't like yeah. just a couple little things caught sooner before sending it off to client review could have made the biggest difference. So then we, you know, iterate our process a little bit, iterate our process a little bit. But it was a series of just asking questions, reviewing what worked, what didn't work. And then I do think taking a, um, somebody that's a very process oriented person, looking at the whole things. So I have the, the training as a, as a chemical engineer, but there's also really good process people out there that can take a look at the big picture and all the little pieces and try to just optimize here and there. Um, yeah, like the, e even little pieces, right? No, go ahead. But like even the little pieces, every little bit counts. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I saw early on, and uh, I really didn't want to be like every other video production company out there. I didn't want to price by the hour or by the day. That, that just, I want to differentiate myself as a, yeah. as a product or a service offering. So I said, how can we build a one price package for that covers all the steps of pre-production, production, post-production, post final product that would cover 80 or 90% of the products we'll do. Right. And we realized that uh, it wasn't hard to figure out, but we, we realized there was roughly a three to one edit, edit days to shoot days. It just kind of averaged out that way. So for every day on set, we had about three days of editing roughly for the types of videos we would film. So then we could say, all right, how much pre-production time for every day, how much edit, and then how much final revisions. We were able to build an entire price point around estimated days of shooting. Wow. So, so for us, we've created three packages, the half-day pack, the full-day pack, and the two-day pack. One price covered everything. It, it simplified our sales process so much, and it connected with the client because they just thought of it, oh, we have to shoot for a half-day. We have to shoot for a full-day. We have to shoot for two days. And it was amazing. That one little pricing, like aha moment when we were going through yeah. our processes, changed the entire course of our business. We've been doing that for the last 10 years. Haven't changed our pricing. We've upped our prices. Yeah. We haven't changed that approach. How, 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 did you, how would you know when to do a half versus a full day? So we started then building these uh, parameters around what types of videos fit inside half day what type of videos fit inside a full day and, and two day. And then we would always give some flexibility. We work this out in our process too. Yeah. Salesperson, 
is going to estimate, you know, that's probably a half day, but it might be a full day. And so we just kind of fully disclose. We don't know until we get into our pre-production meeting. Then when our pre-production meeting happens, we bring in our editors, we bring in our, uh, our production team, and we sit down and we talk about what's the scope of the project. And we then confirm with the client at production what actual the days will be. So we were able to build that into our process. So there is ambiguity up front. You don't know until you get a little deeper in the project. So we, we weren't so constrained that we wouldn't allow ourselves for some flexibility, but we built that change into our structure and our processes as well. That makes sense. And you, you had the initial pushback of like everybody prices per hour in this industry or something, you know, you know the pushback came back from people in the industry. Customers don't flip and know that stuff. Insurance eight sells to agencies where we're not like subcontractor, like a lot of video production companies are. We're more consumer direct deal with nonprofit, deal with corporate clients as well. But they don't know what a day rate is, or they don't even know how many editing days there should be in a project. So for them, it was not a shock. But for the rest of the industry, like how how can you guys do that? And it, it baffled them. It still does. No one does it this way still. And I, you know, it's it's. Uh, it's worked super well for us. We won't change it, but there are still times where the traditional model has to be applied. There are projects that come in that just don't fit this 80% bucket. And then we'll, then we'll estimate, all right, we got two days on the editing. We got or two days shooting. We got five, six days editing. We've got some custom scripts, some custom motion graphic work, and we'll put a, you know, a more traditional quote together. But those are the exceptions, not, not the rule. And it drastically reduced our time to get a quote or a proposal out to somebody as well. Wow. Wow. So those kind of changes in it, and it's that background. So, you know, I think another, another play devil's advocate, you know, the thing is, you know, the more restrictions you place on it, the less creativity you have. Do you think that's also not the case? Is no, I think that about is. the restrictions that, I think it, it absolutely took, it limits the creativity in your approach to certain things. Um, but that's intentional. Like there are certain areas where we want the creativity and then there are certain areas where we don't like, I didn't want to be dreaming up concepts for clients. That's another one prior to them saying yes to move forward on a project, because if you had the creativity before they say yes, they can want, if they like an idea, they can take it and run with it to right. another, another provider. But two, they may not like the idea at all and you just piss them off and they're running to another provider anyway. Right. So we didn't want creativity at the beginning of the process. We wanted it in the pre-production meeting, inside the meeting with the client after they right. said yes. That's when we want to have that meeting, which is also counter to a way some agencies will typically pitch a, an idea. We took the pitching of ideas away from that first moment and, to, and put it right on that second moment after they said yes. Got it. Um, but yeah, it does restrict creativity. It does put some limits on it. Um, but you don't have to, you can have unlimited creativity in certain areas. Of the, we, give our, we give our editors full creativity to tell the story. We put no structure in place as far as putting that story together. Even when we do internal revisions, we have revisions, we have a process where there's a day of everybody, everybody gives feedback. I give feedback on the video, what we like, what we don't like, but we have no prescription. Like I can't tell the editor what to do. They just take what they like and then they, they finish the video. Right. Ultimately, the only person that could tell somebody to do something different is the client. So we knew that was really important to maintain the integrity of the editors being able to tell that story because that's their creativity. Like, they, they fall in love with the project. 
they it's their way yeah so they'll get the feedback but we don't make them do anything different it's their story so that that's an area of our process where we have unlimited creativity that still goes and goes and goes without any real structure to it right and and to be fair if you had just no structure around it no deadline no you know brief you know creative brief or anything around it it's almost too much open space right it's harder to create at that point than if you have some restrictions where you're like well you know we can't use this and we can't use this what could we use you really got to stretch your brain yeah and i think uh, probably the type of business we do forces us into a little more structure than might be a traditional agency that you know is given a wide range of hours hey you can you've got a hundred hours to use on this project go like you know there's probably more flexibility and creativity that's allowed inside of a project like that yeah and ours is a little more structured than than that sense okay well, sweet well I, it, it it's cool to make the creative process a little more predictable a little more regular so you don't feel that sort of anxiety that happens you're like oh can i make lightning strike again well let's recreate all the conditions that helped you do it the first time yeah and we and then you know casey we did it again with uh, the fractional marketing business same concept like there's this part-time marketing consultant out there that wants to be very strategic <clears throat> but ends up chasing projects right One, get a project work on the project get a project work on the project no recurring revenue stream then they end up being more tactical than they want to be they're jumping in the back end of websites and doing social media posts when they really want to be strategic and focus yeah. on research and planning and so we said gosh there's got to be a better way there's got to be a system or process where we could put a uh, put put something together that was a win-win for the client and the the actual marketing consultant and that's what we did with the your cmo model so we took a look at you know, what are the steps to really provide a, a solid strategy to a business what are the things yeah. that um, good marketing consultants are doing and even in this case what were the things that good cmos were doing within their own business well they were doing kind of audit and research early on just to get the lay of the line to really understand the client the the competition the the, the market the expectations and then the next major step was there, doing some collaborative work together with with the senior c-level team or the owner of the business to to build a strategy and and to really think where are we going with marketing and how does it align with sales and marketing and then they were getting shit done project work done you know, really high priority projects on a regular basis and when we started building this your cmo fractional marketing system also did a little research to realize that you know, on average, the CMO kind of is like a two-year position. Businesses and companies are swapping out CMOs every couple of years for, at the whim of, you know, ownership or, or capital or whatnot. So we realized if we're going to build a system, we should have a pretty finite, like, two-year window on this. So we decided early on, that's the constraint. How do we build a two-year system? Um, we also saw with the gig economy and with, with that the, the, there was a trend for people coming out of work and wanting to go out on their own. So how could we build a system that, that supports that transition? And so we started realizing that we can build this fractional model. It was working in other areas like chief financial officers. There's been fractional CFOs oh, yeah. for a long time. There's fractional CTOs out there. So we looked and saw what models that had been you know, working for other professionals 
And then how do we apply that then to our process? And then the question was, is it going to work? Like, is it going to work for clients? Will they actually pay for this and use this? So we tested it for a couple of years and we iterated our model as we tested. And we found that we built some fundamentals throughout the process that worked for retail and B2B and B2C and government and cash and the nonprofit and across the board. And so we thought, oh, wow, we've got a, we've got a model that's working. We built that model on a napkin as an idea. And then within about 18 months, we had 20 some clients that had been through it. And then, uh, you know, to, you know, at the two year mark where we think that where we assumed we would start losing clients, sure enough, just started transitioning clients off. And so we kind of moved that, that you know, the 18 to 24 months is, is the average stay for one of our clients. But then we decided we wanted to attract CMOs to the model. Right. And that was an entire system. So how do you get somebody that goes from working full-time in corporate to be able to be productive as a, as a marketing consultant? They've got to be able to generate new business. They've got to be able to work on their own, work remotely, like we're all doing right now. I mean, there was all these different things that right. needed to be modeled. We're still modeling that. We haven't quite figured all of that out yet. Um, but the client side model, we've got the system process for, and it's working great. When Love I that. tell, <clears throat> I'll just add one more thing. Yeah, yeah. I probably talked to a hundred CMOs uh, nice. in the last six to nine months. And when I share the model about how we deliver to our clients, almost all of them are, yep, we do an audit too, or I do an audit too as part of my approach. Yep. I do the collaborative work as part of my approach. Yep. I prioritize projects on a 60 or 90 day basis. So our model has is exactly what they've been doing, but they all say, wow, you've just really figured it out. But I didn't figure it out. We just took what everybody was doing, the best practices and put it on paper and, and, and draw, drew it out. It's a nice big picture. Yeah. But yeah, it, it you simplified it for everyone so they can kind of see it. It's boiled down. Sometimes the magic, we're just doing it kind of just, going crazy and then it would, you sort of boiled it down into like a, a process you can wrap your head around yep it's that consciously competent like we know what the best people do and now we've mapped it out and if you're already doing it that's because you're over here but now you know why it works and really the, the big categories on that were the was the research and auditing the collaboration and building that internal buy-in and the strategy and aligning with sales and then just rolling up the sleeves and getting shit done. Yeah, and then we do 90-day sprints. We, we identify oh, three cool. to five priorities. And then every quarter, the other piece of our model that we found was important is you got to introduce some new, something. You know, I got pushback from my partner. I'm like, we got to do it. Every quarter, there's got to be a new idea, a new, a new campaign or a new something because people, business owners and, and uh, C-suites and those people, they want that next new thing. They need that next new thing. You know, even if it's kind of like, gosh, we just have to maybe revisit what we did last quarter and tweak it a little bit, it's still new to them. Because if you don't add that new thing every quarter, they start thinking, you know, their interest in you starts to wane. Right. So you got to give them a jolt of something new every quarter. So we, we do a new campaign every quarter. And sometimes yeah. it's a recruiting campaign. Sometimes it's a, uh, it's a niche audience. Sometimes it's a, a featured product or service. But it's a new campaign focused on, in addition to the other priorities, every quarter. Um, and it does work. It is your, your audience wants to see something new. Absolutely. Your customer base, your prospects, they want to see new stuff from you on a regular basis. Not the same thing you did last quarter. Right. Quarter I mean, you gotta, that, you gotta keep, keep moving and innovating for sure. Yep. The 90 day, you know, the quarterly tempo makes a lot of sense and having goals within that. Do you have, 
you know, do you see a lot of people using that agile framework or that, you know, the weekly sprints yeah. or things like that? I think, uh, I mean, I think that the, the idea of this agile or lean marketing yeah. uh, is really similar to what we do. Um, it, and I see more and more people navigating towards that kind of sprint approach. Uh, we like to just put a very solid 90 day block highlight priorities. And then we have weekly cadence check-ins to make sure we're, we're getting those things accomplished. But I think it works if you do a 30 day sprint or a 60 day sprint, uh, much after 90 days, it's not really a sprint anymore. Now we're talking like a, a half mile or something. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Yeah, it, it must be amazing to have these you know, hundreds of conversations with CMOs and you know, s- you know, swap strategies, bounce your model off of them and have them you know, reaffirm that, yeah, that's, that's what we're doing. I just never thought of saying it that way. Or, or I guess I never really thought about it. Yeah, I have been doing research. I always do that. You know? um, what, what kind of takeaways? What, what kind of, you know, have you noticed any similarities, any other similarities between the people you're talking to? You know, what, what does a CMO you know, look like? What is it? What yeah. makes a good CMO? So um, I'll speak from the, the lens of, of the CMOs that I talk to, which these yeah. are corporate CMOs that are in a transition to go out on their own or in a transition to maybe find another career. Um, so they're not already established in their companies. They're usually transitional. And the, the one thing that I see um, very similar across all of these CMOs is they are uncomfortable building a kind of business development concept for themselves. They're they're like the cobbler's shoes of of marketers. They don't know how to market themselves. So there are some unicorns out there that are really good, but the vast majority of them you know, they've been used to just working in marketing and they're kind of in that silo. And now if they got to go out and find their own business, they don't know how to market themselves. And that's, it's, it's crazy. I took it as, you know, for granted that we'll put our system in front of these marketers. They'll go tell people about it and move, they'll be successful. But the reality is it's really hard to be a, a consultant and it's really hard to be a business owner, which you pretty much are as a, as a marketing soul and be able to go out on your own and sell. And so what I found is that there is some built-in animosity and disdain for salespeople amongst marketers. And I think it's from years of working alongside them, you know, beating your head with them, being blamed (laughs) for things not working. And that's real. And that's like boils up and it becomes a marketer's DNA. So we've been focused a lot on how do we accept that for what it is and then figure out marketing ways to still be able to go out there and and show people how to build a network to generate opportunities for themselves and then in some cases do the work for them right that's really interesting yeah it it is and i mean i guess my initial question to that is you know how many of them would you consider as like thought leaders or evangelists for those companies they're at or because they're big corporate they're not really needing to do that because a lot of the the SaaS, but you know cmos I've met or talked to like Latney from Sixth Sense and Sangram from Terminal. They're just these like larger than life, you know, mate, they're real people and they're cool, but like, they're like amazing thought leaders. You're like, who are you? You know, um, are a lot of them like that or because they're, they're kind of in that big corporate, you know, 
protection. It's more a matter of managing large corporate budgets and politics internally or, or what? Yeah. So I see a pretty wide range. I mean, I see the yeah. big corporates and then I see the people that come out of small, you know, they've been big and been small. So I don't think it has to do with the position they were in or the company they worked for. Most of them are super talented. They yeah. are thought leaders. They're very competent. And, um, you know, some have bigger personalities than others, but it's, it's much more of a like, they're really great working for somebody else, but not for themselves. Like, I'm a, it's a cobbler's shoes. Like, I can make the best shoes in the world. My kids don't have any shoes at all. Like, that's what it's like. And, right. and I see that it's not just marketers. I see that just about every discipline out there that, you know, it's really hard to do what you do for yourself. Um, so what we do, it's true. We, we understand that. So we've built, built a whole practice development support team. So oh. we built a team of, of inside salespeople, uh, marketing coordinators, um, business development outside salespeople. And our team is there to support these CMOs to, to get out and be thought leaders, to get appointments with prospects. Because once they show up with a prospect, they're great. It's finding that prospect that's really hard for them or uncomfortable for many of them. So you've got to accept it for what it is. Yeah. Now we're building the structure and this to how do we structure and proselytize that so it's effective. And we need it to be effective every time for every CMO. Like that's that's the goal. And right now it's not. So we keep tweaking and, and, and we realized one of two things. CMOs join our team. They follow our instructions and they're successful or they join our team and they only follow half the structure, the, the, the instructions and they're not successful. And the half that they don't do is the building your personal network, doing personal outreach. It's the people that don't want to do the personal outreach and personal touches. Yeah. None of it works. Like it's a weird thing. So we're trying to figure that out too. So it's an interesting. Yeah, it is a, you know, it's quite the, quite the challenge and, you know, and, getting them to be out there and be a thought leader. They're kind of having to pivot a little bit and change up and maybe reinvent themselves and get on Slack for the first time, like whatever the case may be. Yeah. You kind of have to change things up after being the, the big, big wig expert for a while. Yeah. I should probably think about maybe pairing two people up and say, all right, Casey, I'm going to market for you mm-hmm. and you're going to market for me. Now go like that yeah. might work. I, I might try that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting that that built in disdain for sales, I, you know, I, I've had the, the fortunate chance to do some sales, you know, for my own company now. Um, but now we've got a, an amazing sales team, thankfully, because they're way better than I am. But like I did sales for myself and also I did sales for this tuxedo company, you know, trade shows and just that down and dirty, like doing it gives you, better appreciation for it and then you kind of understand like all the complaints about marketing you're like yeah come on marketing fix yourself and then you also understand come on sales fix yourself so you kind of feel both sides but i could see if if you went if you went you know hard and deep on a certain path in your career now you're a cmo of a large corporation you may not have had that experience and, and you just have decades worth of getting your wrist slapped by sales saying stupid shit and then not calling the lead you got them you know, right. so how do you, how do you um, sort of desensitize them to that or, or get them, you know, get, help them work out their issues around sales and align with them? 
Well, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm uh, disclosing all my secrets and, and manipulating all my CMOs. But no, I just, tell just tell me everything. No, no I, one's I, listening. Yeah. You're fine. <laughs> uh, so one, we change the language. So instead of doing prospect meetings like a salesperson would, we're doing one-on-one -on -one focus groups. Ah. You start speaking a different language. Um, instead of a um, discovery call, it's a uh, it's a it's a discovery conversation. So we're, we're changing little bits and things. Instead of lead generation, it's practice development. So one ah. big thing for us was we realized that we need to change the language to make it sound more like marketing and less like sales activity. Um, wow, that was a big thing. Yeah. And the second thing is we we have one-on-ones uh, or not one-on-ones we have weekly meetings with every CMO um, to review how they're doing on three things focus time so this is a time you're focused on finding one-on-one -on -one focus groups and setting up discovery conversations so just how much time are you spending something that's very easy for somebody to say yeah I can spend hours a week focusing on this yeah two the number of total conversations you have not a salesperson. This could be a conversation with, uh, with a creative vendor of yours. It could be with an existing prospect or a new prospect. It could be a partner. And then three, ultimately, how many proposals did you send out? Because we got to have some true like sales metric out there. So those are the only three metrics we use. And those are three things that you know, two of the three, they're very in control of. The third is the ultimate you know, area for success. Right. You got to have a proposal you've got leading indicators and you've got sort of the trailing mm -hmm. ones and yeah. uh, actually those are all kind of the leading indicators of what could come down the pipe from this. But you know, what's interesting is it's like you're managing like, the, uh, like a sales manager, but you change the wording so that yeah. they don't necessarily feel like they're being managed like a sales rep, but really that's the questions, you know, a, a manager would ask, how, how are your, how are your activities going? Are you calling your leads? Are you, are you generating, are you calling your customers and generating activities? And, um, how many conversations, how many activities you had, and then how many SOWs, how many proposals, how many, what's your pipeline look like? You, you're, yeah. you're asking these with a different language. It's cool. Definitely with a different language. And we're very concerned about most of our, well, all of our CMOs are independent contractors. So they're the building own practice. So we are supporting that. Right. So they set their own numbers. They set their own expectations. And we are not micromanaging or, or, or macromanaging anything. What, what are your goals? How can we help you get there? We want to measure because we know that you know, measuring is going to you know, matter at the end. Um, and it's just that nice weekly reminder that, yeah, I got to do spend more time focusing. Yep. I did enough conversations last week. And then over time, when you see the trends, you can see a, there is a direct correlation between all three of those things and sales. They're right. inarguable. So, right. And, and to your point, you're not, you're not, you know, it's not a daycare, but, um, but having that accountability, you knowing that someone is going to be asking those questions and you might be in front of a group on a group call. It's a little bit of group accountability just to make sure you're, you're moving yourself forward. So it's kind of helpful. I mean, that's why we have fitness coaches, right? Just, right. Hey, how'd you do? How was your eating this week? How, you know, how, how were your workouts? That kind of thing. Absolutely. And the people that enjoy the accountability and will, and will step up their game because of it are more successful. And then the people that, and this happens, I, I do some, strategic planning for lots of organizations or a handful of organizations. I've done a lot in the past, but anytime you put a level of accountability on somebody, yeah. whether that be a weekly check-in or monthly check-in, 
it separates people. Some people like to be held accountable and we're performing. Some people shy away and leave. Uh, and that's, that's just about in, in anything. So we find people that want to be accountable and, and they're more successful with us than those that, that totally And marketing these days, not served well by marketers who dodge accountability. Right. We ain't got time for that. We got, we well, got to step what, up. And at the end of the day, that's what our clients want too. Right? So the same CMOs we're attracting because of our system of accountability, our clients at the, at the end of the day are getting better CMOs as well. And that's how you get and keep a seat at the table too, honestly, it's, whether it's two years or longer, you're sticking around if you're owning up to things and you're showing ROI and you know, accountability is your middle name as opposed to brand hits and, you know, goofy middle metrics that no one understands. Yeah. We did not lose one client during this COVID pandemic in the wow. last 60 days. Wow. Uh, and that's, and a large part of that it. is because our fractional model, it's, it's priced right. So they can, they can, you know, it's not a $240,000 a year commitment. Right. And number two, our CMO system is showing the results that we do to the clients on a weekly basis. Yeah. And so the clients know exactly how much value we provide on a weekly basis. And then number three, and the most important, our CMOs are really good and really dedicated to their team. And they're part of the team. They're not, they're not an independent freelancer. They're, they've got a seat at the C-suite at the table right alongside everybody else. And so... Um, it was shocking to see that much retention. Now, that, that, now if it's still the same. Right. Um, when freelancers and, and marketing are kind of the first to go, we thought that was going to be a big problem for us. Now, what we, what we did see, a drastic reduction in new business and new activity um, because everybody's kind of freezing right now their um, commitments, new engagements. We've got a couple that were right, ready to go. And then it's kind of, eh, let's take a few weeks off. And I think we'll, we'll come back. And we feel we're really well positioned for recovery when it, when right. it turns around. We'll be some of the first people to get hired and, and brought on board. But, uh, but our existing clients, uh, our people work, it's a process work, and, and then we show the results. Right. Deal. You know, the whole idea of marketing get hit, getting hit first, you know, why is that? And do you think that's still the case? If we're, sh I mean, to your point, it's not necessarily the case that you're showing ROI. I mean, is it an investment in growth? And is that why companies, when they're like, well, we don't need the growth, we just need to survive? Or what is that thing with marketing? Is it just because we hadn't proven our, our worth beforehand? Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot because obviously I'm, I've got two businesses in the marketing space. Yeah. Um, the, I think the, the, the answer I came up to is there's just no market right now. Like, I think that is why. If you think of marketing very cerebrally, you know, as a professor would, and you've got this big marketplace. And marketing is about connecting prospects with products and services. Yeah. And when there's a big market, there's lots of different products and services and lots of different prospects. But when that market just shrinks, the entire market, there's only a few different products and services that are important right now. And, and I've been thinking about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. You know, it's food and shelter. It's safety. You know, those other top tier kind of products and services like belonging and affirmation, like people aren't really up here right now. It's food and shelter and it's safety. And that's our market right now. So if you have a product or service in that market, there are plenty of prospects out there. But if you're in the, one of these other more, you know, up the food chain type uh, markets, 
it's just no one's buying. And so if no one's buying, if you're a business, you're like, well, what do we need marketing for? What you need marketing for when they start to buy, or what you need marketing for is pivoting to one of those other existing markets that are there. Right. Uh, but Maybe it's hitting cut on marketing. Yeah. Don't, that way people don't slide backwards. Yeah, I mean, that's that's smart. That's wise. It, it's uh, it's a tough place to be in, but it's kind of like with sales. I mean, sales is here to sell more deals, you know? Yeah. If there's no deals to sell, then what are you doing? Like, yeah, what do you do? Uh, challenging, challenging. So, you know, this is this is really interesting. Are, do you see anything coming around the corner? What, I know we're kind of all laser focused on COVID right now, but you know, is, as marketing's transitioning, we get out of this thing, you know, is there anything tied into marketing or strategies or tech that you're kind of excited about or you get your eye on? Yeah. I mean, I think um, there's going to be a new normal. I don't think we're in the new normal yet. When it yeah. normalizes, we'll be in the new normal. Uh, so I do think that some things will change uh, fundamentally forever. I, I think one thing I'm curious about is the concept of gig working. You know, there was a big trend towards more and more gig workers. Well, the gig workers have been hurt the most from this. And they're the freelancers that are first to go. They don't have access to unemployment. Yeah. Their security net is just gone. So I'm curious to see, is, is the gig work trend going to reverse itself? Will there be less and less gig workers and people will be more and more inclined to want the safety net of an organization? So I think that's an interesting thing. I've been looking at back in 2008, 2009, you know, I, in my prior business, we haven't done my lifeline yet, but I was in the mortgage industry from 2001 to 2008. Oh, and when geez. that market crashed, I got out of that and went, got into marketing. But that market crashed hard, but it was only like a niche area of the overall market. So right. we got crushed, but there were still lots of other things that were, were going on. There was a recession overall, but um, I've been looking at some of the, you know, the innovations that came out of that time frame, like Uber and Airbnb and um, you know, some others. But, but particularly with Uber and Airbnb, they appealed to people's wanting to make extra money. And so I think as we come out of this, you know, this COVID, there's going to be opportunities where, so that whether it's a gig work or some other technology, or how can you help people make more money on the side or how, what business model can you help somebody make extra money? I think, you know, there's going to be some things there. Um, the fractional model that when we get into marketing from a recovery standpoint, they're going to need to start marketing again at some point. If you've laid off your marketing team and you need to hire new marketers, the fractional model might like a, make a lot more sense to step it up than commit to that full-time employee again. So why maybe the freelancer gig economy goes away or diminishes the, the fractional kind of C-level marketing and other fractional positions uh, for that point could become more exciting and more interesting and more of an opportunity for people. So those, you know, I'm, I'm trying to look at, and the other thing I'm really trying to, to do some research in, and maybe you can help me, Casey, because you're a smart guy. How do we measure market timing? Like when will we know when certain segments of the market are coming back online so we can get in early and not be too late? Like, what are the signals out there? Like, what are the tools to measure? Like, you know, like Google Trends, you know, stuff like that. I mean, there's there's stuff out there. Uh, I'm I'm falling, you know, I I fall back into what I know, which is, gosh, every time we do buyer interviews and do customer interviews, we learn tons of insights. Yeah, that's really hard to do right now because there's no 
you know, there's no perspective that's contextual from a, a buyer's marketplace. So how will we know? How will we trigger when it's time to get back into the market? I was thinking about this question too, because I think there's a lot of uncertainty and uncertainty can be scary. So it would be great to have a better sense for that. And, and I don't know if I just, I don't follow enough news sources. I tend to unfollow news. Um, but, you know, a lot of it's kind of like, hey, let's get into this thing. We'll figure out when to get out of this thing. But it's not like a, okay, everybody, start this thing in a month. You can all come out of your houses or two months or whatever it is. It's kind of like, hey, we're going to play with this thing for 14 days. We'll probably renew it. Don't expect to get out anytime soon. But uh, we'll let you know. It's like, ah, it's so, it's so um, up in the air that it, it can kind of breed and encourage the, the fear, you know. Of, and some people can't help but sh- spread the fear and share it because they're anxious about it. So I was, I, was, I was looking at that and trying to understand because even for companies, it would be helpful to, to know, even if you're off by 30 days, give right. or take, using, you know, not the emotional processing, but the fight or flight, but logical reasoning summoning your chemical engineering or the math the math math whizzes out there who did better than i did in abstract algebra like you know what what, what are we looking at here what are the yeah, different what's data the algorithm points? that shows us yeah. when it's time to reinvest in marketing um, and, and i've seen some i've seen some things on that and and so um there's a lot of different consulting groups that have put together studies and, and i see like early would be june later probably more likely july um, is when things start to change. But then to your question, you know, you know, if they say you can go outside or you can go hang out tomorrow, you can go to the movie theater tomorrow, I might wait a day. Like, you know, it's not like just I don't want to be in that rush of people like it's Black Friday. So are people going to be hesitant to get out? And then also the really scary thing for me, I mean, it's not really scary, but the, the interesting thing to think about is all that social pressure, you know, that social pressure to do social distancing, um, which yeah, I'll, I'll take it now um, if it can help encourage us to make this shorter, fine. But the idea of, you know, stay isolated or people die, when, do, when does that ever stop? Like, yep. because technically speaking, you just need to stay isolated forever. But you can't do that. So what's the line of like, well, this next 13% of people may die because we let everyone out, but that's okay because we need the economy to come back you know, where's that line? So it, it might be this really soft, gooey, jello-like return where it's really kind of sluggish throughout that. But I, I, as you were saying that statement, I was wondering what kind of indicators are there? You know, is it is it Delta stock? Is it Royal Caribbean? It, it's when people start doing those other things that maybe are like our signals, you know, return yeah. to normal. I did, I did read recently that the stock market, um, typically will predict a change in the market six to nine months ahead of time. So in the, in the, the um, I don't know the exact dates, but like March of 2009 stocks started going up, but October of 2009 is when we came out of the recession. So like there was a, there was a clear indicator of when um, the market was pricing in the, 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 the up, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the opportunity before it was there. And, but I don't know if you can do that in this market. Like, it's just, it's crazy. It's yeah. Just you know, and I've already seen the market recover a little bit. Not that I, I won't look at that because I'm, I'm planning 20, 40, 80 years out. So I'm, I'm good. It can go up and down, but I just did notice that it was, you know, it wasn't death, a death spiral still. Right. Um, which is a good sign. 
Yeah, I think the the number one thing is there has to be a solution to the health issue, the virus. Like yeah. There either needs to be a cure, right. uh, a some sort of uh, uh, um, treatment, like, hey, this works really well. Plasma looks to be promising um, or some antidote that comes out vaccine or a plan, which is we test and quarantine and then you, you, then you get a stamp and you're good to go. Like there just has to be some clear yeah. definitive solution to that before anybody's going to feel remotely at, at ease to kind of get back into the, the new normal. Yeah. And then the other, the other trend that I think is going to be real is you're going to see a lot more virtual work, yep. a lot less travel. Businesses have been forced to test this theory of work from home, virtual travel, um, and it's proven to be, you know, out, out of necessity, it's proven to work. So, right. you know, do you need, does the salespeople need to fly to, to Chicago to go make their next deal or can they just do a Zoom meeting? I think yeah. you're going to see a lot of that uh, new, the new way of doing business is going to stay be normalized more virtually that's a really good point i you know and, and it's interesting because my company fortunately we're just we've always been virtual since since inception and so um there's some things we just take for granted like everyone's used to doing it everyone's figured out how to do it from home because it's not necessarily yeah. normal if you've been used to going to the office it's like oh do i do I get out of my PJs? How do I, how do I manage myself? I'm in a home now, and how do I separate work from home? And so we've already kind of done those those learnings, and so it's more a matter of seeing our clients catch up to this and trying to coach and help them through it. Yeah. Um, but when you're remote like that, you're right. I mean, there's certain things we do we do travel for sales and marketing, but all of our client, no, most of our client training is you know is all virtual. Um, right. And we don't, we don't have to scale the office to 25, 30 people. It's just, it, yeah, I, I think you're right that they, there will be that. Well, huh, we did pretty good. Because I think one of the things that's happening now too, this, you know, it's, it's so much like a yes and a this and a that. It's like opposite extremes. There's this craziness going on with businesses and we're all just trying to figure out, you know, PPP and all these different things to keep ourselves and keep our team whole. Uh, while at the same time at home, we're saving a heck of a lot of money. Right. I was fortunate to still be in, uh, you know, in a job or, you know, even with unemployment, you're not going out. Like I know for me, we like to go out, you know, go out to dinner and do things, even paying for lunch all the time or getting a Starbucks. You're not doing that right now. or Most people aren't. Um, and so because of that, man, that, that, that credit card statement is a lot different this time around than it was from a month ago. Yep. I was talking to a, a guy the other day and I've had a lot of people reach out to me through LinkedIn locally. Like, Hey, just want to talk, take this oh, time, cool. get to know some more people, which yeah. I think is a great idea. So I talked to this like 25 year old, I'm guessing his age, um, commercial real estate broker. And he's like, I'm just reaching out to people. I saw used to be in the real estate world. want to get, pick your brain. So we chatted. The one thing that I took away from that conversation goes, I wasn't around in the, uh, you know, in 2008, I didn't go through that. Um, but the one thing I'm going to tell my kids about this time is the importance of saving money. Yeah. Because the people that have savings right now are a lot less panicked, are a lot yeah. less stressed, yeah. and a lot less impacted. That's and I good. thought that was, you know, from somebody in their 20s, that, that, you know, if I could go back and tell myself in my 20s, save more money, I would do that today in a heartbeat. But for him to have that takeaway from this time frame to tell his kids, 
I think is, is a trend that we're going to see. People will start saving more. People will probably start spending less. Um, as yeah. a, a new normal, that might be what we see, just less discretionary spending, more savings, which right. is good, but could be bad for marketing. You know, yeah, bad for the product yeah. service. Yeah. I mean, we want people to spend, but do it responsibly, and maybe maybe we just get a little more responsible, hopefully, as a country. But I like that point. I mean, I made a note, I wrote it down to tell my kids, hey, you know, the reason we're partially worried and not freaking out is because we've saved some. But, you know, I think you can always save more. I mean, I, I, as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, I wish I had saved yeah. more, even as businesses, a, com- a, co- a company. Businesses you know? should probably save more. People oh, yeah. should, individuals should save more. Like, totally. There needs to be a bigger buffer. I think people are going to realize that. You know, they probably realize that also in other recessions, but yeah. this one hit everybody. Everybody. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. We, we are kind of positioning our company for, like, growth. So, like, mad growth. Like, I don't say reckless because it was, it was very deliberate and planned, but, like, let's grow this year. So, really placing bets in it. Not so much about profit, but about like the team, you know. Right. Uh, and then to have this go, you just you're changing your script up. You're like, okay, now we got to change it up. Let's just let's protect now. We're not gonna panic, but we'll protect. We're in the same spot. We brought on that PDS support team I was telling you about. Yeah. And we brought on a you know full time people. To we were, how many people? We've got five full time. Okay. We were gonna add twenty CMOs this year. That was our goal. Jeez. So we we built up to start that that process. Yeah. Well, now that's not, you know, short term, that's not looking like a reality, but we still have this team now. And so we're like most business owners, you'd go through the process of, well, do we let one or two of them go? Do we reduce hours? Do we figure out another way to utilize them? Well, we've kind of chosen the, let's find a way to utilize them. And now yeah. we start offering the services they were providing to our CMOs potentially. Uh, and we've got a couple of projects going for some of our clients that could yeah, use that smart. support. So we're able to pull some revenue in to, 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 to cover that capacity while we have it because yeah. um, we have that excess capacity. We're in the same boat you are. So. Yeah. You got to get creative and think about the best use of the time. Um, it, it's, it's, a wild, uh, it's a wild ride. But again, time to protect. Time to protect the family and protect uh, the work family and figure out how we can make it happen. I think we just got to get through this funky summer. You know, That's kind of my, my gut. As you get through the funky summer, and things maybe aren't like bombastic right away in, in the late and early fall, but they're moving and people may have changed how they're buying. And so we need to address that, but we'll need marketing yeah. you know, to help that recovery effort. So, Yeah, I 100% agree. Absolutely. So question for you, who are you? Yeah. How did you become this sage and this gatherer of CMOs and this, <laughs> this is an expert on the topic and this chemical processing marketing engineer. Yeah, I mean, my, my path through marketing is probably very different than most. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and both my nice. parents were teachers. Shout out so, to Omaha. Yep. Someone Shout on our team's from Omaha. Shout out to Susan. Oh, yeah? I had a chance to visit her uh, a couple years ago. Susan Baird? Yes. Holy cow. I know Susan. How, how do you know Susan? I've known Susan for about 15 years. Yeah, we no way. How? the early days of social media. She and me and a couple other people like hung out a lot. You know, we met on Twitter and we, we you know, we, we worked, we did tweet ups together and, and uh, wow. we worked on a few projects together. Um, that's funny. I just assumed Susan Baird when you mentioned her. 
Well, uh, I mean, Omaha, Nebraska, right? Yeah. She's it. She, she's the, so, wow, small world. Well, how, you know, hey, shout out to Susan. Hey, Susan, what's up? Hey, Hi. Susan. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I've had a chance to visit Omaha. So you grew up out there. Are you still there now or was that yeah, just up here? The, still yeah. here. Um, my son just is class 2020. He's graduated high school I graduated from 30 years ago. So I was wow. class of 1990. So, Wow. Uh, so I've been here for a while. I actually went to college at the University of Tulsa. Uh, spent five years in Oklahoma, four years at college, and one year work. Um, and I got into chemical engineering because my you know, my sort said you're smart at chemistry and you're smart at math. You're a chemical engineer. I said okay. And so that's that's exactly how I got into chemical engineering. I did not like the practice of engineering. I thought I loved the education and the problem solving challenge of getting the degree. I did yeah. not like the practice of it. What so, about the practice didn't you like? Yeah, it, for me, there wasn't enough like uh, interaction, education with people. You know, engineers are kind of introverts and, and um, yeah, very, people. very you know, in, into their engineering. And uh, I'm much more of a people person. So yep. Me too. I, I mar married my wife. Uh, we met in college. And she, she, tells, she still tells the story about how she would go to an engineering dance. Like we, we'd have, I don't know, we'd have an event and there'd be, and all the engineers were like, it looked like a high school dance, you know, all the guys uh, were over here, all the girls were over here. And then she and I were like out having fun. And so, yeah, we were nerds. That's fine. I think yeah, but a you're a people nerd. person nerd, which gives you yeah. the advantage over all the other nerds who are still back over there. So I, I, uh, I remembered being in engineering and I had a sales guy come to my desk one day trying to sell me some pumps. Uh, and filters and he took me out to lunch and I was picking his brain like what do you do and he's like oh I, I, I sell pumps and filters I take people out to lunch and I sell them things and it's really fun I'm like ah, that's what I want to do so I quit the engineering job and I got a job in technical sales and I spent five years in Kansas City selling pumps and filters and water treatment equipment wow. um, and had a blast so I, I learned I cut my teeth on sales in, yeah. in that five years um, happened to work for one really large company that, that gave me some really good sales training, but also read a bunch of books. And because my parents were teachers, I'm always into learning. And, and I think that's a key for anybody this ongoing learning in that five-year period. Because I knew I, I always knew at my heart, I wanted to start my own business. Um, I had a lawn service in high school and nice. sold it, sold it for a Jeep and beer money for college. Really? You sold your lawn, your lawn service business for a Jeep? Yep. I got a Jeep and, a, and beer yeah. money through four years of college from it. It was perfect. Was it a Wrangler? Uh, it, was. it was. Oh, it's a CJ7, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a Wrangler guy myself. Uh, so, That's cool. Wow. So I wanted to get back into entrepreneurship, went back and got my MBA, because I felt like I didn't really get a good business education in engineering. And I just <laughs> felt like I needed yeah. that baseline. Um, in retrospect, all the entrepreneurs that I know, and, and I know a lot, there's like maybe 1% that ever had an MBA. <laughs> it's like, it's not a prerequisite of being a successful entrepreneur at all. For but sure. for me, it was the path. So then I got out of my engineering or my uh, program, decided to move back to Omaha, Nebraska. We had a couple of kids. We want to get closer to family. And uh, I chose between either starting a water treatment business, which kind of in line with my technical sales yeah, some experience. Or, or a mortgage business that my mm. cousin ran. So I said, yeah, let's do mortgages. So I started a mortgage business in 2001 and just hit the market at the right timing. You know, that was the vibe back in 01, 02, 03. And uh, 
provide a mortgage business to about 150 people, 13 states, almost half a billion in mortgage origination. Wow. We thought, man, everything's good. This is the life. It was, it was all good until 2007, 2000, when the market crashed. And overnight, we went from 100 and some loan officers to about 10, from 100 lenders to like two. And we had this $30,000 a month building. And it just was, the writing was on the walls. No recovery for us because we had built too big of an infrastructure and we hadn't diversified enough. So we sold our business to a local bank. And it was then where I decided I worked for the bank for a few months, but I knew I couldn't stay in banking. I was kind of burned out on the mortgage thing and I wanted to do my next new thing. And I had two, two you know, focuses. I wanted to work at least half my time with nonprofits because I saw there's a big need in the nonprofit space. And I hadn't been very philanthropical up until then, but I was starting to get into it and realize that there's just, there's, there's an opportunity there to be socially uh, impactful as well as uh, entrepreneurially impactful. So I wanted to start a business and do at least half of it with nonprofits. And then the social media space was brand new back in 2008, 2007. Twitter was just happening. Facebook was just happening. All this stuff was going on. I'm like, that's the next new wave. That's the next big industry to jump into. So I, I jumped into it, started consulting on how to integrate social media and with small businesses and nonprofits. And that quickly evolved into the value of content. Like, oh man, that's, it's not about the, it's not about the, the media. Like everybody knows right. how to do email. You know, that was unique once. Yeah. Everybody knows how to tweet now. It's about the content. And then when I looked around, like, what's the right content? And it was clear that video content was like the best content out there. Right. So I started getting video production people in town, like knocking on the doors. Hey, you only make 10 videos for a thousand bucks for a nonprofit. <laughs> this is back in 2008. They're like, no freaking way. So I started a video production company by myself with a partner. And we had these little video flip phones. I don't know if you remember the old flip yeah. phone. Yeah. It was like this big. And we started our first video productions with a flip phone and we would wow. get like this close to the people. So their face was so good because you couldn't just... get audio otherwise. <laughs> so all of our first videos were, you know, heads this close, Super for close audio yeah. and a lot of B-roll. Uh, and then, you know, grew that to a couple locations in Omaha and, and one in Kansas city, uh, you know, hired actual videographers that know what they're doing. And then four years ago, started working on the fractional CMO model. Just realized that there's a lot of businesses out there that just don't have access to, to C-level talent uh, when it comes to marketing, that they chase tactics and yeah. they rely on agencies and they just don't get the strategy behind marketing. We could, we could fix that with, uh, with a better system. And so that's, that's what led me down the path of the, the Your CMO model. And here we are today. Here we are. Uh, both companies. Yeah. And you're a serial entrepreneur. All the, I, you mentioned market earlier, like you see the markets and you're addressing them. And, you know, I, kudos to you. If I had been in, in the mortgage business and had gone through that, I might still be in it and just dragging by. But you were like, nope, what else can I do? And you just sort of like picked up and pivoted somewhere else. That's really impressive that you're able to do that. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that's, that is the entrepreneur in me, I think. Yeah. There's a lot of entrepreneurs that are, uh, if you if you ever read the big book, book E Myth, best book on entrepreneurship, I recommend it to totally. everybody. Uh, most entrepreneurs are tech first. Like 
they're in marketing and they don't like their boss and they think they can do it better. So they start a marketing company or you're in uh, plumbing and you think you can do it better. So you start a plumbing company. So yeah. Most people are technicians. Right. Um, 90% of them. I'm like the 10% other. I'm an entrepreneur. I don't, you know, the, the, the technical business doesn't, isn't, isn't what drives me. It's the entrepreneurship that drives me. Um, I mean, I'm a marketer and I'm an idea guy. And, you know, I feel at home in the marketing space more so than I did in the mortgage space. But um, it's definitely a different, it's, a, it's my DNA. Five of my partners are all still in the mortgage business. Like when I was in the mortgage business, wow. I had six, six partners and five are still in it. Uh, so. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely. Um, I think I'm more of a more of a technician or like an artist. In that, um, for me, it's you know finding the thing that I really could just talk about forever. Which in one case is part art, which in another case is podcasting, and it's like create a company based on that. So it's a little bit of that entrepreneurship where it's like I don't want to just keep doing it. I want to do it and get more people to do it. You know, so there's some kind of blend. But yeah. It, well, I, I can definitely respect, you know, seeing you transition and just find the product market fit kind of thing. Yeah. I'm usually too far ahead of the curve. Um, no, I hear you on that one. That's tough. So the, it took me about eight years before the mortgage business or the um, video production business was pretty healthy. So I was way ahead of the curve. Right. Uh, I think we're like just, we were, we were this week or this, this year starting to hit our strive on the fractional but we were there four years ago so mm -hmm. um i don't you know i still think the fractional market's got five or ten years of you know, really good opportunity for anybody yeah. that's in marketing right now that's trying to look at their career path their the pivot to a fractional marketing model might make a lot of sense because companies when they when they go through recovery they're going to be very cost conscious they just have to be and they will be and profit margins got to be bigger to recover from what they lost, but their budgets have got to be smaller. So a fractional CMO or a marketing service offering makes a ton of sense in that scenario. Ramp somebody back up so then when they can hire full time. That's what we do. It's, we're 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 there out of a job in the next two years, not to stay ongoing. So they bring us in, we the system, we build the the tools, we we build the trend, and then we look to replace ourselves with a full time person. And it's really attractive in the normal market. It's even more attractive. In a, in a recovery market. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Next question for you. Um, this amazing adventure you've had, if you can go back in a time machine, and I may or may not have one in Nashua, New Hampshire, um, and if you go back in time to the beginning of your career, maybe you graduated, you know, the undergrad and you get your chemical degree, what would you tell yourself? What would you advise yourself having experienced all the things you've been through kind of advice would you share with yourself oh man i would i would i'd give myself some stock tips um <laughs> right i would definitely tell myself to, to save more money along the way yeah. i think um and then I, I i think i would tell people here here's what i learned through 2008 and the in the mortgage crisis is that business is not linear it's cyclical and careers, I don't believe, are linear. They're cyclical. You're going to go through the spring, which is everything's great and rosy. And then you're going to go through the, the summer where you start, you know, growing and earning money. Then you're going to go to the fall where you, you know, can start harvesting and, and, and reaping rewards. And then you're going to go through a winter. And there's going to be a winter. But then there's going to be another spring. 
And so if you think of that seasonality in your career, in business, and in, 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 in life in many ways, then if you know you're in spring, you know, don't think it's always going to be like this, you know. Yeah. If you know you're in the summer, take advantage of it. Grow when you can. And, and, and when, you're, when you're in the fall, pull out and save what you need to because a winter's coming. Uh, and that seasonal thought process, I learned that when I went through the winter of 2008. My experience just it crashed, you know. But the spring of the mortgage industry was, was great. And that summer of mortgage was great. And those springs and winter, those seasons I've found, I've done some research on this. So the length of the spring is going to be about the same length as the fall. Ah. So if you, if you could, if you get rich quick, you're going to lose it quick. Like that's kind of the thinking. So in the mortgage industry, within a year, we were a million dollar company. Within 30 days, we were wiped out Mm. in this video production business. Our spring was about six years. So you know, it's, it's, it's a much stronger business model because of, the, of, of how long it took to grow. Same with same marketing. It's about yeah. four years to kind of get to where we are. You know, it's, it's going to be a longer cycle for that life of that business. And, and, you know, it's anecdotal and theoretical, but that's the concept I think I would have understood. Because when, when you think later, you just think things are going to keep up. You're going to keep earning more, growing more, getting more, doing more. But it's truly linear. Everything is cyclical and small. Interesting. So be aware, be conscious of this to kind of tie it back to the beginning, and and save up the acorns for the winter time. Yeah, you know? we're we're in the winter right now. What's we're coming up is the next spring. Yeah. And so you just got to start. Can you see the spring? Or can you get ready for the right. spring? What right. are you going to plant six, you know, sixty days from now? That's going to harvest six months from what now. What are you going to plant? I think that is that is it right there. What are you going to plant? You can't eat it right now. It's just a seed. Right. But you can plant yeah. it. Yeah. Love that. Boom. How can people connect with you? How can people connect with the video side, the CMO side? They want to. So people can find me at Omaha Joe. Uh, that's my social presence. Twitter. Facebook, Instagram. I just started TikToking. It's really uh, did you really? Yeah, but um, it did. Um, I then just lost my... myself in that last night. By the way, I just I was <laughs> like, okay, I, I surrender. And I went. Like, I was on the the computer, but I went and I watched videos for probably an hour. Yeah, my daughter <laughs> calls me like, "What are you doing on TikTok? You're like a dirty old man." I'm like, "No, there's like real people on here too, but uh, it's it's a bunch of young people, so I, it's kind of it's a little sure. bit my market. So I don't know how long I'll stay, but." Um, then my video production company is called Frost Media Group. You can find me there. Uh, my fractional marketing company is called Your CMO, spelled Y-O-R-C-M-O. Um, it's not an acronym. There's no reason for it other than it's memorable. It and that's always good in marketing. <laughs> um, and then you can find me on LinkedIn. Frost. That's the one place I don't have Omaha Joe, Joseph Frost. But my friends call me Joe. So if you reach out on email, or Twitter, call me Joe. If you see, you reach out to me on Joseph on either of those, I know you're not a friend. Right. I know you are a telemarketer or someone like that. Telemarketer or trying to sell me something. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on here and just hashing it out and sharing this knowledge and just chatting it up with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great, Casey. Thanks for having me. I really, uh, really enjoyed it. It was fun. It was exciting.
Super fun. And, and I've learned a million things. Um, and for those listening, if you've learned something, and I know you have, because I literally have two pages of notes over here, then share this with someone else. Be a thought leader to one person, two people, 48 people, 107 people, even 3,043 people. Just share it with someone. Put it on LinkedIn, whatever. But also, don't just blast it out there. Put your takeaway. What's your biggest takeaway from this episode? Was it around the gig economy, the fractional mindset, or the what good CMOs do, their, their habits? And there's just so many things we talked about. So share those kind of takeaways with other people out there. And uh, again, Joe. It was awesome. Thanks again. We'll have to stay in touch. We'll have to have you come back on here. And, and when, when this thing is all, when we're back in the, the spring or we're back, you know, in the summer, we'll have to have you back on here. We can look back on what we talked about. Um, yeah, we'll have to get you in. back here to Omaha and we can all go out and uh, yeah, enjoy ourselves some Omaha steaks or something. Hey, when I can travel again, let's do that. That sounds great. Great. Thanks, Casey. Awesome. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Appreciate yeah. it. And for those listening, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will catch you all next time. All right. A big thank you to today's sponsors. Cheshire Impact, helping marketers and sales win, maximizing the use of Pardot and Salesforce. And a big thank you to Qualified.com, the number one live chat and chat bot platform for Salesforce and Pardot. Remember the giveaway. If you have Salesforce Pardot and you want a free copy of my book, Marketing Automation Unleashed, then you go over to Qualified.com, engage in a chat, do a demo, and tell them that Casey sent you, and that book will be on its way to your door. All right. We'll see you all in the next one.